In 2012, my family and I moved into a neighborhood in the foothills of Duarte. And since then, I have been involved in a protracted dispute with a local family. Yes, I am in a three-year territorial battle with the Bear family that comes down from the hills and dumps my trash all over my yard. That was a joke. Gosh, this is going to be a long morning if this is, this, this is the response rate on this kind of stuff. Let me be absolutely clear, because I, I, I want you to know that I'm, I'm speaking slightly in jest. Uh, I'm not anti-animal. Uh, not, I'm not insensitive to the needs of the hungry. Uh, my only beef with these particular bears is, like my kids, they never clean up after themselves. And so I'm a little frustrated. Um, if the bears could rumble out of the San Gabriel Mountains into my side yard for a gourmet meal of my garbage, and then when finished, sweep all the remaining contents back into the can, we would have no problem. I don't even expect them to turn the can right side up. I realize they're quadrupeds, and uh, I'm not insensitive to their limitations. Uh, In an attempt to thwart them, I have to confess to you that I do put bungee cords uh, on the top of my trash can, Uh, but these are carnivores with sharp teeth and claws, and so I'm at a bit of a disadvantage. I have to admit that in my frustration, I have dreamed of ways to make their experience, shall we say, painful, uh, maybe so they wouldn't come back, a little, you know, negative reinforcement. However, at this point, my wife starts taking up their defense, as she doesn't want the animals to be harmed in any way. Great news. I have my own personal Sarah McLaughlin in the house singing in the arms of the angels so that I feel bad about potentially maiming the bears. Only in California, you know, if I was back in the South... These bears would be a rug in my house and nobody would care but Carolyn. (laughs) Now, all this to say, the bear family that is the plague of my home existence perhaps best illustrates the principle that the contents of the receptacle are more important than the receptacle itself. And uh, believe it or not, this is the essence of today's passage of Scripture. There's nothing attractive about my garbage can. It's what's in it that these bears are willing to fight to get. Paul's talking about this in our continuing study of 2 Corinthians, and he is making us to be the garbage can and that which is within us, something that is worth going after, that something that's in us is the good news of Christ's grace. Weakness, friends, is not something that our culture celebrates. Uh, We venerate our political leaders, We venerate our historical figures while avoiding to discuss any of their weaknesses or of their failures or of potentially the lucky breaks they got so that they could get where they are in life. And why do we do this? I believe it's because human nature itself wants to be worshipped and celebrated for our achievements as if we were the ones creating the success. We like the sound of applause. It makes us feel as if we are the ones that are deserving of it. Sadly, this is true in my line of work too, a ministry work made possible by the hero-worshiping Christian culture of the evangelical church in North America. In this slice of the U.S., ministers are power players, often declared generals of the faith, and exalted to the point of 
the fact that many of us refer to their churches by the name of the minister. Have you been to so-and-so's church? Have you heard about so-and-so's church? I've even heard this regarding certain worship ministers. Have you been to what's-and-what's-his-name's church where he's the worship, she's the worship minister? The skill and success of these leaders, mind you, both gifts from God, are often the reason they are listened to instead of the humble outlier in the mountains. And sadly, their perceived superiority is often emulated. I had an encounter with a college basketball coach who once shared with me the leadership philosophy they'd learned from a famous religious leader, the religious philosophy of leadership that this televangelist best-selling author had passed along to this college coach was the following. There are times in our leadership lives, like Moses, where we are with the people. And then there are times in our leadership lives when we're out front of the people. And then we graduate, like Moses on Sinai, to the stage in our leadership with the people where we are above the people. Now, there are so many exegetical problems with this treatment of Exodus that I really don't have the time uh, to spend on that. I'll just say the most obvious is this. It is a complete contradiction of the example that our Savior Jesus gave us. The only time Jesus was above the people he was with was when he was being crucified on a cross. He walked with, he slummed with, he was accused of being the friend of sinners. And that wasn't because he was up above them looking over them, getting his leadership lessons all alone with the Father to pass along to the grubby people on the earth. He came down to embrace us. He walked in and among us. This is also the testimony of the Apostle Paul who writes this letter to us today. In his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You know, I have to tell you, I'm pretty proficient in in what's going on in Christian culture in at least North America. And I can tell you that it is rare that I hear anyone who's considered a leader in the Christian subculture of North America that emulates this type of attitude, who says, I'm going to make myself weak. I'm going to make myself appear broken. I'm going to make myself appear as if I am actually a jar of clay so that your faith would rest in the power of God to change you instead of whatever I am perceived to bring to the table. Craig Barnes, who's the president of Princeton Seminary, says pastors are role models for their congregation, but not models of perfection. What they model is confession, dependency, mystery, at times comedy, in my case this morning not so much, and always the pressing determination of the thirsty to find the stream that flows through their desert. In other words, they model the sufficiency of divine grace. This is what the apostle is after today when he is speaking these great words that we 
carry around this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. You realize that famous Christian group named themselves after a Bible verse. If you leave with nothing else today, how about that? Take that with you. Two thoughts for you from our passage. And again, this is a series we're doing all year long. And our hope would be that by the end of uh, 2015, you would feel a great familiarity with 2 Corinthians. Our home groups are discussing the previous week's passage and message as a part of deepening our understanding of this. And if you need more information about home groups, you can see Brooks, who is up here leading worship. He also coordinates all of our small groups and home groups. We'd encourage you to read along with us again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And I have two thoughts for you. The first is this. The contrast of our weakness shows Jesus' power in us. Here's the passage. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power of the gospel, that which changes lives, that which changes us. This treasure is actually from God and not something that any one person who would communicate the gospel brings to the equation. We know that this is the treasure he speaks of, verse 6, last week's message. You can hear it on our podcasts, which are available online or through our Apple iTunes store. Verse 6 says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The treasure of which Paul speaks in this particular passage, verse 7, is the good news that the glory of God is now accessible in the face of Jesus. We are communicating to people, I would proclaim to you, and I need you by virtue of our companionship and friendship and family relationship here in the, in the house of God and the family of God that is this local church to communicate to me everything I long for, every voice of affirmation I long to hear every great piece of hope that I would ever have that God really liked me is seen and found in the face of Jesus. Every hope you have about what God would be like is discovered in the the real incarnated face of our Savior Jesus. How does Jesus deal with broken, humble people? These were the people he walked with. He was tender towards them. His disciples who made great promises and failed at those promises, he restored them. He was gracious and kind, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is the treasure, the glory of God accessible to all. The essence of the gospel is that neediness must be present to receive from the Father. Hence, those who communicate this gospel must demonstrate this as well. The essence of the gospel of Jesus is that we need forgiveness, that we are broken, that we are distant from God, but he has come to us. He hasn't waited for us to get our things together, to develop an interest in him. 
He said, I'm going to pursue you. Jesus comes to earth. In Romans 5, it says, God demonstrates his love for us. And this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not wait around for you to get interested in him. He is pursuing you. And the only thing standing between you and me and restoration to the Father is our own ability to admit our need for restoration. Our own ability to admit our brokenness. And so it makes total sense that those who communicate this message most effectively also reflect this reality, described as jars of clay holding this precious water, wine, this life. We're easily broken. All this serves to show that the power released through the proclamation of the gospel is from God and not from us. It's illustrated in this particular text by a series of contrasts. The, the writer would say, I'm afflicted in every way but not crushed. I'm perplexed but not driven to despair. I'm persecuted but not forsaken. I'm struck down but not destroyed. We see these contrasts. This is what it feels like, but this is what it means to be restored and to be healthy in my relationship with God. This is where I am naturally. I am crushed. I am afflicted, but Jesus prevents me from being crushed. I may be perplexed, but in Christ, I'm now avoiding despair. It's not only illustrated in these contrasts, but it's something that Paul again mentions in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, the purpose of using broken people, the purpose of having this treasure be poured out of jars of clay is that no one would ever think for a second that the life that is coming to others is because of something they bring to the table, let alone in our own hearts. We would never, ever say, I've been restored to God because of something I did, something that is valuable in me. There's plenty that's valuable in us. God created us. He loves us. But that's not what restored us to him. It was his effort to chase down us. Sam Storms writes this. Great people have one distinct disadvantage. They are far more prone to take for themselves credit that belongs to God. Weak people apologize far more than they boast. Strong people, beautiful people, people with money and status are more inclined to draw attention to themselves and divert praise from the one to whom all glory, uh, to whom alone all glory is due. The contrast of our weakness shows Jesus' power in us, which is why Paul would describe us 
as jars of clay. This is not a valuable piece of flatware. You know, at Thanksgiving time when I was a kid, my mom used to break out the fine china. I never understood that very much because it was like twice a year we'd use this stuff and it didn't make the food taste any better. In fact, it made cleanup afterwards a lot longer because you had to be really careful with the dishes. My wife and I have these little debates about where to go to dinner and what to eat. Carolyn is fond of a well-designed meal presentation. We go to dinner and they bring you like a little piece of steak and an asparagus and then they paint something on it with some sauce. And she's like, isn't this beautiful? And I'm like, no, it's small. I'm going to be here all night. I'm going to have to order three or four of these and they're not cheap. I'm not particularly concerned about the plating, as they call it. To me, it's about the food. That's why I eat at barbecue places. Lots of food, Chinette. See, that's it. What I'm telling you is that we want to be known as the China. You know, I am Jesus' messenger. On me, a fine piece of China comes the gospel, and at best, I'm Chinette. You know, I'm a really good paper plate. I mean, and that's on a good day. You and I are told that we are the privileged ones that get to bring the bread of life, but the bread of life will always eclipse the quality of the dishes, and it's designed that way. Our job is not to make ourselves look good. Our job is to be honest about who we are and allow Jesus to look good. The contrast of our weakness shows Jesus' power in us The second thing I'll share with you today is this. The constant of our struggle produces produces Jesus' life in us. The constant of the struggle. Perhaps you're like me and you grow weary of when is this going to get easier and how come when it seems like one area of my life gets under a reasonable amount of comfort, another area of my life starts to kind of spin out of control. I, I liken it to combination locks. You know, if you've got four numbers in my life, I usually can get three of them lined up and one of them I can't get just right. I just can't get them all clicking. If you're a car aficionado, you have four cylinders in a car and I can't ever seem to really get life firing on all four cylinders. Something's always kind of out of whack. And God has said that he designs our lives this way because of the same reason we're called jars of clay our human nature, our tendency is to forget that real life is found in Christ. I I read again from our text. I pick up after the contrasts that we are not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We must pay attention to a couple of the words in this passage. One is the the word always, because that does signify, and it isn't by chance, that this is the condition of the Christian. There will always be a struggle. There will always be be a carrying around of the sufferings of Christ. They may look different. 
But there's always going to be that struggle in this world. The references to death and life here are not metaphors, but literally the Apostle Paul's experience, as he'll state later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he was beaten more frequently than anyone else in the ministry. Odd thing to brag about. But Paul slowly learned that his greatest moments of experience Christ's life in him, Christ's power, Christ's grace, Christ's joy, were amidst these intensely difficult situations. Can't many of us say the same thing? I mean, you don't want bad stuff to happen. We're not masochistic. We don't find ourselves saying, I just love it when pain comes. But maturity as a Christian seems to be, from the Scripture, something where we stop fighting against the difficulties and we start recognizing that that's part of life and it's not only a part of, it's a random part of life. It's a part of the grand design of God to sharpen us, to help us to see and to help us to access greater life in him. Our nature says we need comfort and security. And so many of us, particularly in our culture, move through life making comfort and security the most important things in our lives. However, our comfort and our security are exactly what keeps us from experiencing the joy of Christian living that comes from knowing nothing but Christ. This is why Jesus would say it's more difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to us because we cling to our stuff. We look to the things of this world to fill holes that Jesus has already promised to fill in us. St. Augustine said, earthly riches are full of poverty. Earthly riches are full of poverty. There's a story of a 10-year-old boy who decided to study judo despite the fact that he'd lost his left arm in a really devastating car accident. And as he began lessons with an old Japanese judo master, he thought he was doing particularly well, but he couldn't understand why after just three months, the the master had only taught him one move. Sensei, the boy asked, shouldn't I be learning more moves? His master replied, this is the only move you know, but this is the only move you'll ever need to know. Not quite understanding, but believing in his teacher, the boy kept training. Several months later, the sensei took the boy to his first tournament. Surprising himself, the boy easily won his first two matches. The third match was a little more difficult, but after some time, his opponent became impatient and charged, and the boy deftly used his one move to win the match. Still amazed by his success, the, younger, the youngster was now in the finals. This time, his opponent was bigger, stronger, and more experienced, and for a while, it Looked like the boy was overmatched, but once again the opponent dropped his guard and the rookie used his move to pin his opponent and win the match and the tournament. And on the way home, the boy asked his sensei, how did I win the tournament with only one move? To which his teacher replied, you won for two reasons. First, you've almost mastered one of the most difficult throws in all of Judah. And secondly, the only known defense for that move is for your opponent to grab your left arm. See, if if he hadn't been weak, he'd have never relied upon that one move, nor known that that one move was enough. 
He didn't understand how his weakness was his strength. He had to, like we do, trust that weakness is the way, as J.I. Packer would say. Philip Hughes writes, It is precisely the Christian's utter frailty which lays him open to the experience of the all-sufficiency of God's grace so that he is able to rejoice because of his weakness. Jesus' brother James wrote in James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, when we find Christ, and he actually fills that space in our lives, we know a satisfaction. We know a joy. It's, it's something we're growing in and learning in. And each night, as a friend of mine, Ray Cortez, says he goes to bed full of grace, and each morning he wakes up starving. It leaks out of him in his sleep. Each day we have to say, Father, you are enough for me, instead of looking to the things of this world. This was the experience of the Apostle Paul, the one who pens this letter to the Corinthians. In other passages of Scripture to other churches, he writes a very similar message, which is to say there is a tendency in him and a tendency in all of us to look to our own accomplishments, the things we've done, or look to the opinions and the needs that could be met by others to fill this space in our soul And then when we don't get what we want, we kind of throw a mini temper tantrum. Some of us, not so many. And and we say, we we want what we want, and these people aren't giving it to me. We long for significance to others. We long for security in life. And spiritually speaking, we long for the certainty of our acceptance by God. But oftentimes, we cease relying on Jesus We cease saying, I'm weak and I bring nothing to the table. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We don't do that. We say, I have to be able to bring something. We listen to some televangelist or some person who wrote a book about five ways that you can be a superior Christian compared to everybody else in your church or or something that's designed to make you feel better than others, which, of course, in and of itself, as C.S. Lewis would say, is proud and of the devil. Paul would communicate this. The apostle writes to the Philippian church about his own propensity to look to things other than Jesus for not only all of what life should bring to him, but his own sense that he's secure and loved by God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Critical word in this passage is rubbish. That's right, Paul says all of the things that he would count to his credit, his status, his stuff, all of the good works that he might be able to bring to the table to say, look at what a great religious person I am. I do this, I do that. How many of us know that we have stored up all of these these opportunities to say these things are going to what makes these things are going to are be what makes me feel like I'm okay, I'm right, I'm at peace. Look at what I've done. We find ourselves grasping for others to tell us how significant or loved we are. We find ourselves looking to our things and our stuff, our possessions, and we cling to those things because we believe they'll give us life, the scriptures say, to combat this. The Father has ordained that we would struggle, there would be a constant struggle that would enable us to cling to him, that would force our hands to depend on him, to look to him. And Paul says, for that reason, I consider all that I have rubbish. The word is garbage, refuse. Don't you see that by nature, we're my neighborhood bears. We're busting into trash cans We're nosing around in rubbish when Jesus is offering us so much more. He's saying to you and I, you don't have to have everybody tell you you're important. This is an ongoing struggle in my own heart. The need to have others say, you're valuable. Jesus tells me on a daily basis, if I listen to him, you don't need others to tell you you're valuable. Look to me. You are loved. That doesn't mean that it isn't important and encouraging when people tell me that they love me or that they appreciate me. It just means it's not the source of my life. And even when people do offer encouragement to me, if my perspective is correct, I actually see it as coming from God. So I don't find myself looking to someone else's affirmation. See, you and I are so prone to dig through the garbage that Paul says I've got to identify it as such And I'm going to, and I quote Paul, consider it garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And this gets to the real issue of our hearts. Do you want to know the security of salvation? Are you somebody who says, I just want to know that I'm okay with God, that I'm at peace with God? Do you want to know that that deal you have with God is settled, that you don't have to fear him, that you don't have to be afraid of him? Well, Jesus gives us the key through what Paul communicates. He says, the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith. Did you know that when you trusted Christ, it wasn't just a matter of being forgiven for your sins? That when Jesus came to take up residence in your soul as a believer, you were credited with all of the righteousness of Christ? You didn't just try to get into the kingdom of God. He came and got you. He forgave you. You're not barely saved. 
you're completely rescued. I've always used this analogy that if you were driving down the road and you got a speeding ticket, and not that I've ever experienced this only twice in the last six years, but anyway, uh, and you get a speeding ticket and the officer comes up to the car and he or she says to you, listen, you were well over the speed limit. Uh, There's a citation here for hundreds of dollars. I'm going to go ahead and pay that for you. Most people would be satisfied to say that is a, an apt illustration of the Christian faith. We've been forgiven of our sins. You ask any young person, what does it mean to become a Christian? Ask any old person who hadn't been in church in a while. They'll say, Jesus died for my sins. I've been forgiven for my sins. But Jesus has done so much more than that. He's provided for you all that you would ever need to enter into the the. the the presence of God. He's given you credit for his holiness. It's the equivalent of the police officer saying, and not only am I going to pay the fine for your exceeding speed, but I have a Porsche in my garage at home and I'm going to give that to you too. See, it's it's not just not getting what you deserve. It's getting what you don't deserve. This is the gospel. This is the treasure. And the only way people are going to see it in us, the only way we're going to experience it, is to see ourselves properly as jars of clay. Let us pray. Father, today, my hope would be that we would not be people of despair, even as you've given us this contrast. We might feel crushed by the reality that we are broken people, but you have liberated us to know that we are your beloved children, that Jesus, you've taken care of everything that would need to be taken care of so that we can finally rest. And yet we tend to look to things. And so we need your help today to turn to you to once again Say, Jesus, you are sufficient for us that we're going to consider our good works. We're going to consider our impressive skill. We're going to consider our accomplished resume or our accumulated possessions as garbage that keep us from experiencing real life in you. I pray that today as we come to the table you would fill us with the fullness of all the joy of the gospel to remind us again that regardless of the circumstances of our lives, that real life is available. Real life is available in this vessel of clay. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.